Welcome to The Fine Line. I'm Liz Willette Daniels. And I'm Emily Gold. As longtime veterans of the restaurant business as well as wine importing and distribution, we wanted to start a podcast to learn how the people we admire balance hedonism and health. We wanted to explore people's individual journeys to pursue their love of eating and drinking as well as health and wellness, and we ask how they learn and grow in this process. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate and review. Enjoy the show. Could you imagine how hard it's been for the restaurants this past year? Some of you can because you've been in it and like us are so incredibly grateful to the groups like the Independent Restaurant Coalition who fight for the places that are the backbone of our social lives. To talk about this journey and about the mental and physical health in this industry is Mr. Bobby Stuckey, who's an MS and co-owner of Scarpetta Wines, Pizzeria Locale, Frosca, Tavernetta, and Sunday Vinyl. All just sounds exhausting reading the list. (laughs) Bobby began his distinguished career in restaurants in his home state of Arizona, working his way from dishwasher to management. In 1995, he joined the Little Nell in Aspen as a sommelier. In 2000, Stuckey moved west to work with world-renowned chef Thomas Keller at the French Laundry. It was during his tenure at the French Laundry where Bobby met his future business partner, Chef Lachlan McKinnon-Patterson. With the vision of opening a neighborhood restaurant reminiscent of the Italian frascas they'd visited in Italy's Friuli-Venezia Giulia region, Stuckey and Patterson opened their first restaurant, Frasca Food and Wine, in August 2004 in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you so much for being here, Bobby. Emily, Liz, thanks for having me. Super excited. <laughs> so are we. It's kind, of, it's kind of weird. You know, uh, I think uh, this weekend <clears throat> is 17 years that I uh, signed the lease for Frost. Wow. How happy this anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is when we signed the lease, yeah. Wow. yeah. Oh, and man, so that's a big flies. moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you start by telling us a little bit briefly how you got into this industry in the first place? Um, well, yeah. Well, so I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I'm proud and uh, open about my challenges as a student growing up. I was uh, I'm dyslexic and ADD. Um, so when all my friends were uh, getting good grades, I was trying my hardest to be average, and it was really hard for me. Um, I was uh, I, I didn't have any success at all at school. I tried really really hard, and I'm very close with my uh, my brother. Uh, Larry Stuckey, who were born on the same day, but were two years apart. Wow. And school's very easy for him. Uh, I don't think he ever saw a B. Hmm. And then I was the exact opposite. If I got a B, that would be like saber time champagne. Right. And uh, I was a really uh, challenged student. I got kicked out of Jesuit school. Oh. I was a busboy. And I was working as a busboy in high school as a little punk rocker in Phoenix, Arizona. And I remember... The night I was getting trained as as an expediter, and uh, you know, back then it was uh, handwritten the green tickets. Yeah, and there was all these green tickets up on a Friday night. And the guy training me was probably a ASU college student, and he had a meltdown training me. <laughs> and he was training me, and I was looking at all the tickets, and it seemed normal to me. I was like, oh, I think I know what, because I had paid attention as a busser when I'd run food and. And I just started moving the tickets around and listening to this, the chef screaming. And I said, oh, I move this here, call this ticket. And I felt so proud Aww. that uh, there was something I could do well. Yeah. 
And so I was like, well, I like this, man. This is right up my alley, man. A lot of energy. Um, I can do it. <clears throat> and I remember a couple years later, I was still in high school, missing uh, uh, working. I had worked a Mother's Day brunch, and I went to see my grandparents afterwards. My grandfather, a very cranky Arizona native, was like, well, Bobby, if you really like this restaurant business and you like it, then try to be the best busboy that you can be. So that was in the mid 80s. And here we are 30 some years later, I'm still trying to be the best busboy that I can be. <laughs> um, but that's really how it started. And then I became a waiter and then I was in college and I moved my classes around. So on Wednesdays, I could always be at wine class at the restaurant I worked at in Flagstaff, Arizona, where I went to NIU. And, uh, you know, it's just a different time then, right? Uh, yeah. There was no path. Uh, there wasn't the TV Food Network. It was a very blue-collar industry, and it was a, a craft. So you were very much about the process. And the process then was you became a waiter, and then you tried to become the 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 best waiter, and then you could be the maitre d' assistant on Friday nights or the maitre d's night off. And then there weren't many sommelier positions, and... I heard about the quartermaster sommeliers in the early 90s, maybe 1993. I was racing bicycles and I was like, uh, I will just try to do this. And uh, it was in Arizona. There weren't many positions available and uh, you had to just kick and scratch for one. And then I got to move to the Little Mill a couple years later as the assistant and I've been trying to improve ever since. <laughs> you know, I've never heard you talk about um, falling in love with working in restaurants in quite that way. And it makes me think you're just so, you're one of the lucky people, you know, to have yeah. found something that you're good at and that you loved so early. I feel very lucky. <laughs> and, I, and it also makes me more passionate about our industry of, I think there's a lot of positive, even though we write about a lot of the negative. There is... Look, it is an industry of first chances, second chances, and third chances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like if you're new to this country, we embrace you. Yeah. God forbid if you uh, made a mistake once you were 18 and had a felony, we're there for you. Yeah. Uh, not all industries do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, let, let's say we talk about college tuition and how expensive it is. Uh, this, is a, this is really what the 50s had as the blue collar industry that anyone, if you couldn't afford to go to college, you could make a living in the industrial factory jobs. But that's what the restaurants are mm -hmm. across the US if you look at it that way. And so I just love this industry so much and I try to protect it and, and that. Yeah. Well, this last year, I mean, I can't even imagine watching everything you have spent your life building almost come crashing down over something that you have no control over whatsoever. I mean, none of us saw this coming. So very, in a very real way, like how has this been for you? I can't even imagine. Um, you know, this, of course, this, uh, this pandemic is, I hate the word, but it has to be used unprecedented. Um, it made me think about a lot of things, uh, how fragile our industry is. Um, you know, I helped, um, March 17th, uh, found the Independent Restaurant Coalition. I thought we were going to do that for like four weeks. Right. It's 11 months later. We're like every day. Like out for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Grinding it out. Exactly. And uh, I realized that uh, many things were wrong. Uh, like I didn't understand the fragility of my own industry that I love so much. 
And if I didn't understand it, how is DC going to understand sure. it? And I had a really, so, uh, you know, we, we founded the IRC and, and it made this more stressful this year, already stressful because I feel the weight on my chest every morning when I wake up of those 500,000 restaurants and 11 million jobs out there that need us to survive. And uh, so it's been very, very motivating. It's been exhausting and it's been exhilarating because I've learned something that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I could talk to a senator or a congressman or a governor. Um, so there's been a lot of, there is positive in, in all this. And I do hope that once we get through this pandemic that the Independent Restaurant Coalition will be able to work on initiatives to make our industry better. And I think it took something like this to do it. And can you give us an update on where you are with the IRC right now? Yeah, um, as of this hour. And maybe <laughs> if I can interrupt, like a quick synopsis of what it is and who's involved and then. Sure, yeah. So it uh, it formed, uh, if, if people in the restaurant industry remember across the country, it was about March 17th. New York closed a couple days before us, but pretty much March 17th across the US was the day where everyone had to close. And uh, a lot of things happened. We, we found out that business interruption insurance wasn't covering uh, all these things yeah. happened. Um, no one had a, uh, here in Colorado, uh, Mayor Hancock said, hey, we're, you're closed minimum till I think he said May 15th. So we knew, right. holy moly, we're three months. And uh, so the Independent Restaurant Coalition, uh, I was one of the founding members. It was just a telephone call. And we were like, what's gonna happen? And we knew that we might not have the right advocacy for us as independents. Uh, there's 500,000 independent restaurants in the country that support about 11 people, between 11 and 60 million jobs, 11 wow. people, million, plus the other five that are, are uh, ancillary jobs that aren't in the industry but need us to be open, distributors, linen drivers, farmers, and such. And we said, okay, we need to advocate f for ourselves. Uh, American Express was the first person. They, they gave us some money. Uh, we went and hired Thorn Run, a, a lobbyist group. But it's very, this is about as grassroots bootstrap as you see, can see. When you see it on social media, you think the IRC is this big organization. Right. It's really the core that's doing the work is about 20 people wow. duking it out every day. And uh, they gave us some money for a cup for maybe a month. And then we started trying to raise money and uh, we first started working on when the PPP came out. If you remember the PPP came out and there's no one had any answers, but if you were a restaurateur, you read the PPP and uh, I hate to use foul language, you knew you were fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like you read the PPP and if you've read, if you've ever read a bill, it's not very exciting, but you read a bill and you see, well, PPP was law. So you read the law and it said, you had an eight week test period and you've got, and I'm like, wait, well, we're closed for another 12 weeks. Right. What, what, what this what, doesn't what work. What am I gonna spend it on? So the, the first initiative we did is we worked with um, Dean Phillips from Minnesota and Chip Roy from Texas. I went to high school with Dean Phillips. Oh really? Yeah. Big <laughs> fan, so big fan of that dude. Yeah, good he, guy. So the Always Phillips, a good guy. I mean, Phillips I, Roy Bill. That's, that's. I didn't know that. That's the, amazing. The, the Phil, uh, Dean Phillips, thank, Thank you, Dean Phillips Aww. and Chip Roy. So a Democrat, moderate Democrat and a Republican from Texas, bipartisan as it gets. They did the, the PPP flex 
And that gave us a little bit more timeline. Got it. Unfortunately, a lot of restaurants didn't know this was coming down the path. Mm. They spent their money. And then we worked with um, uh, Earl Blumenauer. He is the uh, congressman from Portland. He is the patron saint of restaurants. Uh, Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, a Republican. In the Senate, uh, Roger Wicker, a good old boy Republican from Mississippi who loves restaurants. And uh, Kristen Sinema, um, um, a trailblazer uh, Democrat from Arizona. Hmm. The four of them were our, 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 our leaders in this, and we wrote a couple bills called the Restaurants Act. And long, the long year history was it got passed by the House got put in the HEROES Act. I thought in September that we had it wrapped up. As you follow uh, US history this year, um, Mitch McConnell had a, a different plan. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't include us. Um, took it all the way till December, kicked us to the can, passed the package without us in it. Uh, what happens, uh, for those of you who didn't watch School of Rock as a kid, <laughs> um, when you have a new bill, or when you have a new Congress and Senate, you have to rewrite the bill and represent it. So that's what we did. Uh, uh, we we kind of crafted it now as one exactly the same bill in the House and the Senate. And uh, that's a standalone bill that's presented by Kristen Sinema and Roger Wicker, and we're working on co-signatures there. And at the exact same time, uh, we worked with the Biden administration and uh, we have a smaller version of that bill, the Restaurants Act, it's now called the Restaurants Revitalization Act. Uh, in the 1.9 uh, trillion uh, COVID package that's going down the path this afternoon with Congress. Uh, so it passed small business last week. So I don't want to jinx it, but we're really close. Okay, great. And we're recording on the 26th, and this will air early on March 9th. Early March. So we'll hope that yeah. we, when it yeah. airs, we'll have great news. Yeah, it would be amazing for a lot, a lot of them. Uh, just so many jobs out there, and so many farmers, and so many fishermen, and so many restaurateurs. Hope it happens. Yeah, well, and for you personally, you know, it's for everyone, but also we care about you. We want you to feel yeah. <laughs> relieved. Um, well, thank you. Um, you know, I, I think it's moved way past me now. I think it's now, I like I wake up in the morning, this is part of the craft of hospitality is, is hospitality is not about yourself, it's about others. And uh, maybe this Restaurants Act is the biggest act of hospitality that restaurateurs who are involved can do. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to even conceive of a world without restaurants. I mean, they're... That's our social life, you know, 100%. Yeah, and I think we didn't understand how much the food supply chain needs us. Yes, exactly. I mean, on me personally being on the distributor side. Same idea. Totally. I, I heard some very startling news uh, from uh, some agricultural farmers, uh, organizations across the U.S. from North Dakota, Iowa, uh, Idaho, Georgia. When I talk to a congressman or a senator, if it's a heavily ag state, one of the things we might do is reach out to the agricultural community mm -hmm. and get a, a, a test of what, how they're doing. <laughs> Nothing has affected these farmers more than us being down. I bet. It is really crushing to them. And, uh, you know, more than any tariff with China, anything, these farmers are really left out in the lurch uh, when we're not going on. I mean, Tom Clicchio did a great piece with uh, Terry Gross on NPR and it talked about the, how many 
thousands of uh, pigs were being slaughtered, euthanized, yeah. because we couldn't oh, use them. The whole food supply chain from how milk is done and, and vegetable, it needs restaurants. It's perishable. I yeah. mean, you know, from a distribution side, our wine is not perishable for the most part. And we had retail. But, the, you know, farmers don't have that other outlet. Yeah. So, yeah. wow. So I think it just makes us realize that, well, let's get through this. And then we got to address some of these things. Yeah. You know, Liz, I think a lot about how lucky you and I are. We live in a beautiful place. We get to be friends and host a podcast together. Yeah. And we have the occasional addition of some liquid luck. Oh, you mean tequila, don't you? I do. You know me so well. Top shelf only, please, like Suerte. I love Suerte. And it's not only authentically handmade at a boutique distillery, but it's also super affordable. It's top shelf quality at a school night price point. Yeah. And it's born in Mexico, but raised right here in Colorado. So we're also supporting a small locally owned business, which you know I love. I do. I think all of our listeners should get in on some of this liquid luck in their lives. You can use the code FINELINE15 at checkout on shopsuertetequila.com. That's FINELINE15 at shopsuertetequila.com. Or if you are here in Colorado, pick up some Suerte Tequila at Boulder Wine and Spirits, North Boulder Liquor, or the Boulder Wine Merchant. Maybe we'll all get lucky this weekend. (laughs) So I always think of you as, I mean, we all think of you as incredibly fit. I mean, you are a daily runner. You've, you obviously prioritize that as much as, as any of the many things you're passionate about. So as a restaurant over, owner over the years, has it been hard for you to stay sane and healthy? Has it always just been something that is a non-negotiable for you? How, where, where do you find your balance? Hmm. Um, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, first, I, I have okay. So I'm 52 years old this year. Um, in my mid 20s, I was working in Aspen, Colorado, which is not the most. It can, you can make it a balanced community, but it could also be seen as a, a heavily party community. And I made a choice in my late 20s. Um, I wanted to be what my grandfather asked me to be, the greatest busboy ever, and I wanted to be at 100%. And I realized if I was going out at night after work, and look, I like having a beer or a glass of wine or a magnum of wine, whatever, as much as anybody, but I needed to set myself up to do this for a long time. And I want to be, I'm still trying to get better. And so you got to have some balance. And um, so part of it was I, I, reduced myself going out after work and would only do those on nights off or things like that. And and I was always an athlete growing up, but I really said, you know what? I'm going to make sure that I, every morning, carve out a moment to either go for a run or a ride or or whatever it may be that someone needs, but to add that balance. Mm -hmm. Our industry is stressful. (sighs) Late hours. Late hours. And look, we, we discussed it yesterday on the pre-call. Uh, look, I also have a little bit of advantage over other people. I have an incredibly supportive wife. You do. Jeanette. She's wonderful. And she, yeah. she understands this industry. And this industry is hard on couples. Mm-hmm. It's hard on people to find balance because 
it doesn't matter if it's their roommate, their their parents, their girlfriend's parents, their boyfriend's dad, someone's gonna hate this industry mm-hmm. and that makes it more stressful. So you really gotta find this balance. Yeah. Have you always been um, a late night person? You know, is that hard for you to adjust your circadian rhythm or do you just, like how much do you sleep? <laughs> well, um, I sleep a touch more than your dad. I know your father is <laughs> not a big sleeper, but I'm right behind him, I think. Uh, it's funny, I'm a morning person. Mm-hmm who works in, in the evenings. Hmm. Um, so I, a couple things that I try to do is when I get home, I shower, I have an interesting beer or one glass of wine, I listen to some music. I try now, early 30, 25 years ago, you didn't have computers that you were turning on when you got home. Try not to put my computer on when I get home. Smart. Uh, try to read, just whatever. I'm also... It's funny, my wife is a wacky night owl. Oh, oh really? I didn't know that about Like, her. if you guys are ever, like, up at two in the morning and you need to talk Always. to someone, just call Danette. She's, like, just tinkering around. I mean, it's just so wild. Like, yeah. n- this is no BS. I'll be getting off work at, like, 11 o'clock at night, and I'll say, honey, I'm coming home. She's like, don't bug me. I'm on the treadmill. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. So she... Yeah. So, but that does help our relationship. So when I come home... My wife's you not in bed. You can hang out. Yeah. Right, right. That's great. You know what I told her today? I said, honey, it's a Friday night. Do me a favor. Get your workout done a little bit earlier tonight so we can have a glass of wine. I said that to her Amazing. today. <laughs> she's like, well, I'll see. You know, right. and she, so. And she's very independent, which is awesome. Yes. Because you need that. Yes. Yeah. But um, it's funny. I'm not that much of a night owl, but I, my rhythms, I've been doing this my whole adult life. So yeah. um, I try to calm down read something uh and it can be anything and 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 then that sets me up to go to bed quicker i think uh the computer the 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 tv things like that i've never owned a tv so i don't know what that's like but um those things i think keep you up a little bit yeah no that's all good sleep hygiene advice yeah and even the bottle of wine i mean i used to come home from nick and tony's and pound a bottle of wine and then be shocked that i was wide awake you know, yeah. I mean, it, it, you think it's there winding is sugar you down, but it's actually, <laughs> you know, the full bottle is is only winding you up. Yes. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So never worked well. So what about, um, you know, kind of more generalized tips for, um, you know, I think you have 200 employees, but for people working in restaurants or at night everywhere, you know, what are the lessons that people who don't have a Danette can <laughs> kind of take home with them? Well, yeah. Um, well, that's a great question. First, I think you have to be honest with whoever you're, you're, you find as your partner. And, and, and be honest and be comfortable with revisiting the topic of your career path. Because what makes our industry tough, we naturally have a little bit longer hours. Okay, so let's say it's an 11-hour shift for someone else's nine. Yeah, that's a little bit, but what really makes our industry tough is loved ones or family members of loved ones don't like what you do. Yeah, And you gotta communicate that. You gotta say, hey, I love this industry. I wanna be great at it. I need your support. And you gotta be open. Mm -hmm. Most people just kick that can down the road and you've gotta revisit that topic also. Um, I think that's really important. I also think Uh, there's a simple math number is if you want to do something and you want to be great at it, 
look, if you go to college and you want to get A's, you got to be between 90% and 100% of your GPA or whatever. I was never there, so I, I can't really testify to that, <laughs> but I know simple math. Look at your work week that way. You have a five-day work week. If you want to be great, you've got to be 90%. And it's hard to be 90%. Things come up. You get a cold. Uh, your loved one's, something's up. Man, God forbid, someone's sick in your family. There's all these things that are fighting against you. Don't add extra stress to yourself. Meaning, if you got five days, if you show up what I call banged up or hungover or whatever, one of those five days, the best you're going to be that week is 85%. Mm -hmm. Just simple math. Unless you're like some outlier supersonic person. But w what I notice as someone who's been at this in the trenches so long is I see people get themselves worn down and it's not the environment. It's self, it's happening to themselves. And then of course I get that email, Bobby, can I get an espresso with you? No one emails their boss to get an espresso unless they want to say how bummed out they are about something. And, uh, or that they want to leave the industry because their loved one hates it or whatever. You know, those things happen and it's, it's real. But I think the first thing is set yourself up to be great and take away those things that, that, that add stress to yourself. Yeah. It's, it's a big ask of a lot of people. I mean, I dated a chef for five years and I finally just was like, this is not the life I want, you know, but it's a, it's, you have to be honest with yourself and it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tricky. Yeah. And, and I think that's great advice. Like just get it all out at the beginning and yeah. figure and, and out if you're both in for it. Yeah. And look, uh, um, journalists have not been the greatest for our industry. They've really added a lot of butane to the fire. I mean, they really glamorize. I mean, we, we, you can look from when they started glamorizing Marco Pierre White in London as a chef 30 years ago, they glamorized this bro party at all costs drug fueled yeah yeah totally look look we're and not it idiots. used to be a more drug fueled industry than it is now i mean i you know you and i were both in it in the 80s yeah. and it was a different thing for sure 100 percent. yeah i mean i got my first front weight shift because no one showed up for a brunch shift <laughs> because they were all messed up on cocaine right in the 80s. they were I was still like, up from the yeah they were yeah. yeah and uh I was. I remember. I was there, and uh, I was a brunch shift, and uh, the there was me and this other server. I was the busboy, and she's like, "Well, Bobby, you know how to use these tickets." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, let's go, let's go." Poured a lot of coffee and and ran you around. walk out with a wad of cash. Yeah. At two in the morning. I mean, it was just a trouble waiting to happen. Yeah. You know, especially in a place like New York City, which never sleeps. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it was a different, but you're, but to your point, I mean, you would never see like the journalists taking pictures of Michael Jordan with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Like people that are professionals and at the top of their game in any other industry are never portrayed as also being complete party animals. No. And it was only in the restaurants that that was a thing. I mean, no. maybe actors. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, actors That's or musicians, a, but yeah, I, there's a lot musicians. Of, there's a lot sure. of build them up to see them fail kind of stuff. There. Yeah, mm -hmm. actors though, if they're on that track, they're not going to last very long. Yeah, you know, it's so. it, it's like anything. If you want to be yeah. great, 
button it up. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought I would have been much better in the restaurant industry if I did cocaine and stayed single. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> if only. Now we know where the the path went awry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could have I could have made those choices. I just, you know, oh here God. we are. Well, and I also want to go back to something you said about you know, you get a cold and things like that. So do you feel cuz I think one of the trickiest one of the biggest things that COVID has I think shown all of us is like we shouldn't go to work sick, right? And we all have. How many times have I been out yeah. selling with a horrible oh cold? Now, of course, at this point, if you if that did have well, you wouldn't go out now, but let's say two years from now, you'd at least have learned that we should wear masks, right? When we're not feeling well. But I think in the restaurant business there was very much that mentality of you always work when you're sick or else you're kind of a wimp. And also, from a practical standpoint, you're not getting a paid sick day. So you have to go, kind of. So do you see that hopefully with these bills you're passing, I don't know how much is written in there for for the restaurant industry to maybe get more on par with some of the other industries that, you know, I mean, if you think about showing up and handling people's food when you're sick, it's pretty disgusting, but we never thought twice about it. Yeah, we were early adopter at Frosca that if you weren't feeling well, you had to go get a doctor's note. Mm-hmm. And then we, I found out that that was, I shouldn't have been doing that. Okay. You're not supposed to tell someone to go to the doctor. And I'm like, this is so moronic because if, if you, if you don't feel well, and I always had this thought, Frosca's got some older clientele. I mean, this is 15 years ago. Yeah. I was like, if you're not feeling well, you shouldn't come to work because you could kill somebody. Sure. Like the flu can kill people too, totally. right? This yeah. is before COVID. Yeah. This is, we, you know, and so I was always someone like, if you don't feel well, you go to a doctor. Um, with saying that, uh, we've always provided, before I ever took a dividend check from Frosca, we've always provided insurance for our team. Uh, that's something that's really important. Now, we're saying- You have a 401k, that, like you've set yeah, it up like a real business. Yeah, yeah. matching 401k. Yeah. Um, now, with saying that, I can't force my employees to enroll in the insurance. Uh, that's not always their choice and or that they wanna do. But with saying that, um, I do think post this pandemic in the current restaurants act, it gives you funds to provide sick leave if something happens. So that's in there. Once we get through the restaurants act, the IRC definitely needs to work on some things on a civic level, a state level and a federal level to make the playing field a little bit more healthy for the restaurant industry so it can treat its employees more healthy. It's a symbiotic relationship. Something has gone wrong in our industry that in 2019 when the economy was going like this, the um, the restaurant industry was at an average profit of 5.9%. Wow. I mean, that's just, there's no, mer- mer- there's no margin for error. Yeah, you can't sustain that. Though. No, and so we need to get we have to look at some things and I've got some thoughts on that, that it's just right underneath our nose uh, that we have to do. It's like, I'll give you a great example. We live here in Boulder, Colorado. 10 years ago, I remodeled the restaurant. And at the same time, Crispin Porter, an ad agency was remodeling Crispin Porter. And uh, one of their their president at the time was like, hey, did you get these uh, tax breaks? I'm like, no, I'm gonna go down there tomorrow. So I went, I was really thankful. He said, yeah, you know, 
So I went down to Boulder County and they're like, well, th those don't apply for restaurants. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know, the, the even in a progressive city like Boulder, yeah. they view restaurants as like burger flippers. Sure. I, I hate to say it. Yeah. And even though I'm providing insurance and a 401k, that's what makes something a real, a real job. And I was doing it then. So there needs to be a way, you, you saw how many millions of dollars cities across the US were spending to try to get Amazon to come to their, you remember that two yes, years ago? Yes, I do. Because it was supposed to go to New York and then it all yeah. got, yeah. Think about that. If you did that to independent restaurants across the US, if you like, there could be an employee tax credit or whatever. There's so much mm. there that would help restaurants that they should do because these city governments are getting it too good. Yeah. Restaurants employ a lot of people. Um, they, they put 94 cents of every dollar back into the economy. So if you could get that and then you could carve off things for like better pay, uh, sick leave, all these things that are really important. When I love what Calicchio was saying, even like we keep your neighborhood safe. Our lights are on late at night. We're open. There's a place you could come in. I mean, there's just a lot of things yeah. that you, a lot of reasons you want restaurants open yeah. in your neighborhood that yeah. people don't often even think about. No. Tom Colicchio is amazing. I know. He's been great. He's us. been like, he's yeah. one of my fellow IRC people. Yeah. And he's taught us a lot because he was into uh, being politically active before this. Mm -hmm. And he's re and he's really smart. And, uh, and he's, he's got a lot of exposure because of Top Chef, so that's great. Like, that's yeah. the kind of person you yeah you want on your side, which well, is terrific. So what are some other things that um, we can do to change the restaurant industry? I mean, you've talked about the fragility. You've talked about, you know, more or less a lack of respect for the industry as a whole. Yeah, I think it has to be, you know, we're in a, we're in a very interesting time. I think we have to respect ourselves too. Like I think there needs mm -hmm. to be a respect employee to employer, employer to employee. Cause I do think we're in this, and I don't know how the answer for this, but everything I see on social media is uh, misguided. Hmm. Like if you remember back into April, March and April, people literally going after restaurants because restaurants were trying to do GoFundMe for their employees because we didn't have an option. I didn't realize there was a negative reaction Huge, to that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Me either. Yeah, and like I've, I'm looking at this, huh. I'm like, what are you Why thinking? Would you yeah. And they're like, well, restaurants should just be able to do this. And I don't think people realize that if, a, if the average household can't go a month without a paycheck, how does a business go a month without being open? Absolutely. And and I think it's it still exists right now. I mean, we're the restaurants are now across the, except for places like South Carolina and Georgia and Arizona, the rest of the country. We've gone eleven months without being at a hundred percent occupancy, and everyone's just gotta under be in it together. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I hope it seems like it's made people appreciate restaurants when they thought they might lose them. You know, sometimes it takes something like this. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I was on, on a call uh, with a pretty famous congresswoman, and uh, uh, this is earlier. I knew, this is when I knew we were in a mess. Uh, it was earlier this summer when we were trying to get co-signatures for the Restaurants Act, and uh, uh, she goes, "Bobby, you know, I'm friends with restaurateurs, 
and I have been for decades. This is the first time I've ever sat down with one. Huh, interesting. Meaning in a congressional yeah. matter. So we, we do have a lot of storytelling to get across and let people understand because I think we've been too good as restaurateurs of being that swan above the water where everything looks majestic and serene and underneath your, your feet are just going as fast as they can to stay alive. Yeah. And we just gotta be honest. I love hearing how bipartisan the effort was though. I mean, that's great to hear. Yeah. That you had people on both sides of yeah. the aisle because it's not what we hear about Washington yeah. in general right now. No, not no. right now. It's pretty wild. Yeah. I want to totally move off course to a different question, which what so I lived in Italy for five years. I know Italy well. What made you and Locke say, let's go to Boulder, which was not a food town at the time, and open not a restaurant from Tuscany or Rome or all the places that people have visited and know well, but Friuli. I mean, it's not the, re the, the region you think of when you think of Italy right away. Yeah. It was really dumb luck. It was like <laughs> being naive. And I look back on it, it was one of the luckiest moves we did. Yeah. You know, Lachlan had lived in Paris for three years. He had gone to Ferrandi and then worked it uh, in Paris and out on the uh, Brittany coast. Um, and when we first went to Friuli together, he was like, you know, it's weird. This place is just so welcoming. It is. Yeah. He's like, Bobby, you can live in Paris for three years and not feel that welcome. Venice is the same. You yeah. live in Venice, you'll never get to know a local. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. But for you, it was just like from the day we showed up. Yeah. It was weird. We joked by the end of that trip, uh, Nate Reddy was with us and Danette and I, and we were, we were joking like, well, they're, they're probably bringing the mayor out to have coffee nice. with us any moment. <laughs> yeah. And it was... So it was kind of dumb luck. That's great. But to be able to have that region as our North Star mm -hmm. for 17 years, I think it has really helped us as a uh, as a company. You know, uh, Lachlan and I were on a Zoom call today with uh, for Scarpetta with people in Friuli, and it's like, oh my God, we're so lucky yeah. to have that region to grow up with. I mean, it makes a ton of sense in retrospect. Yeah, you know? and but we didn't know. But you also really put that place on the map. And, you know, I remember when I moved here four years ago and Joyce was talking about some Pinot Noir from there that we only get 10 cases. And I'm like, you could never sell Friuli and Pinot Noir in New York City. <laughs> but here, because you've made Friuli kind of, you you know, there's a whole, there's a whole Slovenian market here that yeah. never would exist anywhere else. So that Pinot must have been Duetari? It wasn't Duetere, it was, we don't even have it anymore, but um, you guys poured it for a little bit. It'll come to me when I stop thinking about it. Right. But um, yeah, it's just fascinating to watch because having been in the epicenter of food and wine for a long time to see how much that's affected, you know, what Boulder wine merchant can sell, which is a lot of really cool wines from that part of Italy, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I just, that popped into my head as we were yeah. chatting. No, it's true. I mean, I remember my early examples of learning about Friulano wine with you and being like, yeah, like you haven't had that Chardonnay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, Friulano wines are hard to sell in yeah. New York unless it's an all-Italian restaurant. Mm -hmm. Forget it, you yeah. know? So, well, it's been a, fun, it's been a fun journey. I feel yeah. really lucky. Yeah. 
Well, we always like to wrap up with something that you're looking forward to personally or professionally. So what's what's something that is making you happy to think about that you hope to happen this year? Two things. <laughs> uh, the one, I hope the Restaurants Act gets passed. So, so many people that are so stressed and, and hanging on by thread and that might lose their restaurants get to have their restaurants. And then I, uh, last year was my 20th anniversary with Danette and oh. it was during COVID. So we dressed up in the backyard. <laughs> and I owe her a trip. There's an island called Ischia uh, off the uh, coast of Napoli. Yeah. Um, I really want to take Danette and stay at Mesitori for a week. Awesome. That's really good, what we need. Hmm. Yeah, that'll oh, that be sounds great. wonderful. Those are two good things to look forward to. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to travel. I think yeah. 2022 is going to be just the roaring 20s. Like every, there's so much pent up demand for travel, and I mean. Not that I would go to Disney World, but I'm sure that places like that will just be mobbed. I mean, people have not been spending, and if they haven't been hit hard in this time, I just think it's going to be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Can't wait. I know. Me too. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having Appreciate me. It. Everyone, big hugs. Yeah, exactly. Virtual hugs. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Bobby. Yeah. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please do rate and review and hit subscribe. And we have a new Patreon account. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash fine line podcast and become a sponsor if you want of the podcast. We'd appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. See you soon. Thank you.